You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Glad that you, if you're online and you're joining us today, welcome to Life Community Church. We say this every week, obviously, we are a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ, and we strive to live out that identity by four particular values, by practicing love with everyone always, by giving more that makes sense, by chasing after the likeness of Christ in every corner of our lives, and by anchoring ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word. That's who we are. That's what we strive to be. Uh, a few things that I want to pass along to you for you to know. Um, number one is our blessing tree is still out in the, the, the foyer fellowship hall, whatever you want to call it, um, narthex. I think that's a word that you could use for it as well. Uh, you can go there, and there's some instructions. We do this every year. It's been called the angel tree. It's called the blessing tree. You can take some things, some angels off the tree, and then buy them. Those, those products for needy people and then bring them back here and then we'll get them to where they need to go. So note that. We've always done a good job of taking care of that. Second is if you're interested in some missions, our SIN ministry is going to do an information meeting concerning the Atlanta Dream Center that deals with human trafficking. And, and those are the dates of our trip. If you're interested in maybe attending or just knowing more mission, uh, information about that, just uh, note that net on Sunday, December 6th, there's going to be a meeting right after the service in the lounge. Uh, number three is if maybe you've noticed, I think you have because there's no more left, but there are some kids' activity bags that are outside that contain a little bit of craft, uh, some coloring pages, and then there is a section for sermon that um, we're going to do something new this week, and I'll lead you in that, but we're going to do a little kid's sermon today, and I promise it'll be okay. Uh, so we're going to do a kid's sermon today, and I'll go with your activity bags. And then lastly, if you're in here, And if you're online and maybe you're uncomfortable being in spaces with lots of people, just know that we have additional seating available to you down in our lounge that you can watch service and kind of have your own space. All right, well, let's head into the book of James. We have two more weeks in the book of James. And so we're in chapter five. We'll do the sort of first chunk this week, and then we'll end next week uh, in the book of James. So let's read this together, James 5, verses 1 through 12. If you have your Bibles, feel free to join us. Use your phone as well, um, but we'll be on this, they'll be up there on the screen as well. James chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotten and Rotten and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit on the earth, being patient about it until it, re- until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Lord, we come today humbly under your word, and we ask, Spirit, that you would convict us, guide us, encourage us where you need to. God, use this word to to change our life. Let it be nourishing water to us in this day. And we pray all of this through the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, a little different this week. If you're a kid in here and you normally would be in children's ministry in the loft or downstairs, can you give me a wave? Where are our kids at here? Oh, thanks, Chelsea, for doing that. I appreciate that. Good to see you guys. This is going to be interesting because I've never taught with my daughters right in the front row. So this could go crazy, okay? This could go crazy. Can you wave to somebody else in the room? One of your other friends maybe in the class? Okay. Uh, Today, we want to take a moment just to talk to you. We are looking at a book that was written a very long time ago by a man named James. And James is the brother of Jesus, who you've talked a lot about in your Sunday class. Jesus is our deliverer. He's our Messiah. He's our king. And what James is going to tell us today, Ellie, (laughs) is that there is something that we use, something that we earn, something that we save, something that we work for in this world that can be very dangerous. James is going to talk about money. And I know that maybe you have coins and bills in your rooms and piggy banks, or maybe you even have a bank account where you've put some money away. And you may think, well, how could money hurt me? Well, outside of you swallowing some coins, which I'm sure there might be a kid or two in here that have swallowed some coins, money can't hurt you physically. But what James is going to contend to us is that money can have a harmful effect on our life, on our souls, and on our eternity. Many of you see catalogs. You've seen things on TV. You've seen things on the internet. You've seen things that your friends have, and you thought, I wish I had enough money to buy that. Christmas is coming, and I know that you're all excited about and you're probably hopeful that your parents might have enough money to buy for you what you really want. And so I want you to hear from me today that money can hurt us. Not in a way that we need band-aids for our boo-boos, but in a way that it makes us forget who God is. In a way that we prefer to run to God or run to money before we run to God, in a way that we put our hope and security in our future and our wealth and not in the hands of our Lord. Money, if we are not careful, will make us forget about God because it makes us believe that we are God, 
Because if we have enough of it, we can buy what we want, when we want it, how we want it, where we want it. And God has said that's not good for us. We are designed to live with God, for God, through God. And so God has told us that he wants us to love us with all of our heart, strength, soul, and mind. God wants us to be all in, not just to be some in. Money, above all things, creates distance between you and your God. And it blinds us from the fact that we need him. The Bible says this, that the love of money is the root of all evil. And so I want you to listen today as we talk about the danger of money and the wisdom that comes with living for Christ. And so I'm going to give you five words, and they're in your activity box. I'm going to give you five words that I want you to listen for today as I speak. I want you to listen for the word insulate. I want you to listen for the word integrity. I want you to listen for endurance, kingdom, and money. And you can circle them as many times as you hear them. All right, you ready? Here we go. We, uh, as we read James, we remember that this letter was written to the earliest of Christians in a time that they were in the midst of adversity and struggle and persecution. They're being persecuted by their fellow or former Jewish peers, but they're also being oppressed by a Roman government, and they are on the verge of war. Just 20 years in the future after James writes this letter, the nation of Israel goes to war with the Romans. And so this is a, an hectic, chaotic, difficult times. But what seems to be a constant theme that James brings up in this letter is that in the face of these great trials, many of his audience, many of his readers have placed a lot of hope and assurance in their own wealth and money, or they seem to be banking on some sort of association with those circles who have more money and more wealth than they do. And it seems more and more apparent that James takes an issue with their actions. <laughs> time and time again, James tries to pull his readers away from the intoxication of wealth and possession away from the cozying up with those who have wealth and status, and away from the ideas of self-reliance and self It was over before it started. We know that. It was over before it started. It's very apparent to James that there is an all-too-real drift in moments of instability where one begins to press themselves towards the objects and the tools that can prop them up to bring them stability and security rather than running to seeking and trusting God. And I think this is such an obvious theme in James that we ought to dedicate some time this morning to understand why the Bible, why Scripture is so dedicated to warning us against the desire of riches and wealth. Because there is an overwhelming wisdom in Scripture that says that we must guard ourselves from the allure and the desire of money and possession and wealth. Jesus, in Luke 12, says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The writer of Hebrews says, 
Keep your life free from the love of money and can be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in Proverbs, in our Old Testament, in Proverbs 11, says those who trust in the riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. This is just a small breath of the overwhelming wisdom of Scripture that's dedicated to being careful with money. And this sort of caution and warning is so pervasive, so consistent in Scripture that we can often bemoan the tension and friction that it creates in our hearts when we realize that in this day and age, we have it pretty good. We do not want for many things. And so when we choose to study God's word, when we're in God's word, we find ourselves running into this wisdom over and over and over again. And in doing so, it creates a tension in our souls that make us ask questions like, should I be guilty for having what I have? Do I need to give up some stuff? It makes us ask questions like, is it okay for me to have this much? Or maybe it just leads us to go, man, I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not rich. That's not me. This sort of tension often makes us want to exempt ourselves from this sort of wisdom and applying it to our lives. We want to read these texts and we want people to teach these texts in a way that we can feel better about having what we have. To make us feel a little bit more settled that we don't have to give up all that we have and give it to the poor. That's our bend. We want scripture that deals with our finances to make us feel better about having what we have. And so instead of the efforts to dodge these types of scripture, I think it better that we deal with them head on. That we deal with them head on and understand why God is so belittling of riches, money, wealth, possession. And so first and foremost, understand that God doesn't live under the illusion that money doesn't solve some problems in our lives. I know that some can say that money doesn't solve any problems. Certainly on a spiritual realm, that, that's true. But that sort of attitude lacks the empathy for real-life situations where we actually can help. Money has a unique place and purpose in our lives. And James speaks to that here when he talks about these laborers. He says, Behold the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back in fraud, and crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. If you were to open a history book and try to understand what a worker looked like in the times that James was writing, writing you would understand uh, this term of a day laborer. And, and a day laborer was the common laborer of the day. They would work for a day and they would expect the labor that they put in for that day to be paid for at the end of the day, which often meant this. They were paid so little that one day's pay was the difference in their and their family's survival or starvation. And God decries the greed of the one who would withhold from another the means of their salvation or their, their, their survival. And so certainly money isn't everything, 
but money is necessary in a broken world. That is an unescapable fact. It is the one who treasures it who should realize that their decay and destruction are imminent. This is what James points out, and he points to a world in disorder when that creation grows to love and worship money. And so James says something helpful for us to to understand the dangers of money when he talks about the fattened heart. He says, you have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. And we should understand that as somebody who lives in luxury and indulgence and totally forgets that they're on the way to destruction. They are gorging themselves of the pleasures of the world, unconvinced of their own destruction. And this sort of wisdom will help us understand the perils of what it means to have money in our life and why God is so concerned about it. So if we think about literal fat, I'm not going to think about it too long, but literal fat is energy that is stored in your body to be consumed later. Fat, by nature, insulates. Fat, by nature, insulates. And it insulates us, it protects us from our bodies running out of food or the lack of food, and it protects us from the cold. So fat provides protection for lack of food or a lack of warmth. Fat provides protection for our bodies for hardships. But we would all agree that too much fat is a bad thing, that too much insulation is a bad thing. There is a moment when fat becomes unhealthy, particularly when that fat comes near or around our heart. And in the Bible, anytime you hear the word heart, you can take that to mean your moral, intellectual, emotional center. That is what the Bible means when it says heart. The part of you that makes you, you. The part of you that guides you and directs you. The part of you that talks to yourself in the mundanes of your life and in your work. That is your heart. And in our scripture, we get an understanding that wealth and possession and money have similar properties to fat and are particularly dangerous when they come near our hearts. Just as fat insulates us from the hardships of hunger and cold. Money, money can insulate us from the hardships and the brokenness and the realities of a broken world, the struggle of a broken self, and compassion towards the brokenness of others. Can I say that again? Just as fat insulates us from a lack of food and a lack of warmth, Money also insulates us from the hardships and the realities of a broken world, the struggle of a broken self, and compassion towards the brokenness of others. When this world fell, when sin and death entered a world in which it previously did not exist that we can read about in Genesis 3, this world was gutted. And it still is. And from that very moment, humanity has been grasping for the understanding and tools that could satisfy the void in themselves that stems from a lack of wholeness and a lack of peace that is only found through God. We are separated by sin from that which truly satisfies in God. 
And money has been the central focus of our grasp for fulfillment and peace from the beginning of time. Wealth has a way about it that makes us believe that we're better than we are and far more capable than we really are. It insulates us from the difficulties and the hardships of a world as it truly exists by giving us the ability to insulate ourselves by the acquisition of excess, that in getting as much as I can materially or having as big of a bank account as I possibly can get, I might protect myself and marginalize and lessen the storms and the chaos of this life. And in our ability to do such, we look at ourselves and say, look what I did. Look how capable I am. And the more excess that we are able to provide for ourselves, the more money we have, the more possessions that we have, the more we become expectant that this is the life that I deserve. We become convinced that we are entitled to an insulated life. Money, like fat, insulates us from the lacking and brokenness that comes from within. We can look at our possessions, we can look at our bank account, and we can say, look how good I am. Look at me. It distracts us from the tensions of our souls that are never satisfied and never at home and without rest. It is a well-thought-out scheme by the enemy to take the anxiety of our souls and make us believe that if we acquire enough if we look a certain way and how we are seen by people that we will find the solution to the, the, the answer to the cause of distress that is within me. Money creates a busyness in its acquisition and its acquirement that robs us from the silence to deeply reflect of the problems and the hurts that are at the core of our living. Money insulates us from an inward struggle by creating the lack of struggle in our physical lives. Money insulates, like fat, us from the plights of countless individuals who aren't as fortunate and don't have enough, who struggle and who will suffer. Our money buys us bigger houses, nicer communities. We create distance from those who suffer and struggle so we don't have to see it. And it creates an emotional distance and an overall lack of compassion as we look at others who are less fortunate with pride in our eyes and say, if you only knew what I knew, or if you would only do what I did, or if you would work just as hard as I have. Money affords us the opportunity to escape the proximity of other people's pain. The danger of money is in its ability to give us the illusion of self-reliance and self-sufficiency to live increasingly independent of God and far more dependent on ourselves. We foster a belief that money will keep me from harm, it will secure my happiness, and it will sustain all the efforts of my life. And maybe we think, well, that's other people. I'm not the 1% in this culture. But it's not necessarily the size of one's wealth that can find sin and danger. 
It is also in the strain of us using every single dollar to live above our means, to stretch every single dollar to work for us, in neglecting that money wasn't created to serve man, but money was created to serve God, we disregard the truth that God has called us not only to worship him with our lives, but to worship him with our money, to use our money to grow the kingdom of God, to use our money to provide care for the poor and the widow, for those who are voiceless, those who are in harm's way, rather than merely adorning ourselves with the pleasures of this world in our own little kingdoms of one. Money becomes a counterfeit God. It creates a vicious cycle where we worship our wealth and we use our wealth to worship ourselves. I say that again. It creates this vicious cycle where we worship our wealth and we use our wealth to worship ourselves. And in our worship we, of money, we will find that we will increasingly do what it takes desperately to get it and keep it. This is why James is so concerned for his readers. And this is why God over and over and over and over and over again warns us of the dangers of money because money becomes a surrogate God that leads thirsty people away from the true living water. So this is the wisdom of Scripture over and over and over again that God is satisfying, that his kingdom is most satisfying. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 5, he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. David, King David writes in Psalm 23 of what truly satisfies when he says that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name. He is the center of sufficiency. God, it leads me. He guides me. He restores me. Paul in 2 Corinthians speaks of his weakness when he says, but he said to me, Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus says in John 7, Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, but seek ye first the kingdom of God in his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It is God that satisfies. It is God that saves. It is God that has called us not into the sustaining kingdoms of one, but into the flourishing, rich fulfillment of a community of believers who are selfless called the church. Money flips life as it is intended to be on its head. Money elevates self and happiness. Money elevates getting what I can get now and enjoying it while I can. But the kingdom of God prioritizes others, the joy of salvation, and sacrificing for tomorrow. So it is the wisdom of Scripture that continues to bump over and over and over again against riches and wealth 
And please know that it doesn't come from a God that's a cosmic killjoy that wants you to be miserable and rob you of all your pleasure and safety, to that you would live poor lives on this earth, but know that it comes from an unchangeably good and holy God who has great concern. Because money makes you believe that you're better than you are and more capable than you are. And it robs you of what truly satisfies and saves. Money, money is humanity's God if it goes unchecked. And so in chapter 5, James tells us that, yes, money is necessary. But he warns us that a creation that treasures it will create a world of decay, disorder, destruction, and dysfunction. And for those who worship it, you should enjoy it while you have it. But your destruction and weeping is imminent. And look, as Christians today in this time, in this place, in this moment, you and I, we have to pay particular attention that we are checking our hearts and our minds and that we are submitting ourselves to the flourishing wisdom of God's word and design. In this day and age, Christianity has overwhelmingly attached itself to a conservative political ideology, ideology, a conservative politic that is about free enterprise, it's about traditional values, and I'm not here to argue whether those things are, are good or bad, but, but here's the message of conservative. Regulate what we can and cannot do with our body, but don't regulate how I earn and save my money. Hands on my body, but hands off my money. I want you to know that that message runs counter to the wisdom of Scripture that says it was never your money. It was never your money. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns it all. If we don't prioritize submission to God's wisdom and word, we will create half-truths in a lukewarm belief that will lead to our destruction. Friends, we should never feel at home in any worldly politic. We should be uncomfortable. And if you're in here today and you're uncomfortable with what's happening in the world, that's okay. That's quite okay. James writes this concern for the money first for those who would read this that are non-believers. That they should understand the perils of the life that they are living as well as to remind believers of how they should be cautious, but also that they should know that God is perfect in his justice and he's holy and he does not see the deeds of the wicked and he does not see their suffering and overlook them. He does not overlook them. And we are led to believe this because James says to his readers, be patient because God sees it all. He sees all the injustice. He sees all your suffering and he is coming back. He's coming back. Now, every generation speculates on the return of Christ. This generation of believers that James is writing to believes that a return of Christ is imminent. And we believe the same thing today. Every generation cries out that the return of the Lord is imminent. But the wisdom of James and the wisdom of the rest of Scripture is that we should not concern ourselves with the when. It is no good for us to know the when but rather in light of the fact that Jesus is bound to return, that we would live one who is, as one who is ready and hopeful in light of it. 
In light of it, we should be helpful as we live in the land of in-between from his ascension to his return. That we should look at the farmers for their endurance as they wait for the rains. That in our obedience and in our trust, in our, that we are in our being convinced that Jesus is going to return, that he's the only things that satisfy, that we understand that God will prove himself to be compassionate, far more merciful, far more loving and worthy, he will prove that he is far more sustaining than we believe he could be. But in the meantime, live your life as one who rests in that and one who understands that you will be held accountable to living like it. So then James sort of wraps this whole section up by this perplexing phrase that seems like it lands like a spaceship in the midst of this winsome. James says, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Oaths were a legitimate part of society in this time to sort of prove your guarantee that you would return whatever it is that you promised or said. So it'd be like us today saying, I I promise I'll do that. And somebody's saying, you mean that? And you'll say, I swear on my mother's life. And, And so essentially what you're saying, if I don't do that, then you can take my mother's life. There are people in this time that are swearing oaths on God. And they are saying, I swear on the God of Isaac, Jacob, and Moses that I will do what I do. I'll do. I'll promise I'll pay back what I'll pay back. They're using God as collateral in transactions. And James doesn't seem to think that that's a very good thing. We ought not to do that. But as we read this and and understand the scriptures before it. And, and when James says, but above all, my brother, so he's referencing this wisdom and saying, dangers of money, patience in, in struggle, but above all, my brothers and sisters, that your yes be yes and your no be known. James is indicating is that don't make this life about your consumption, whether you have a lot or you have a little. Don't make your life about that consumption. Don't focus on getting rich nor wallowing in your lack of. Simply live as one who has integrity in front of people and integrity in front of a holy God. Let your word matter. Let your word matter. And and maybe this is the better life for Christians than thinking about riches. That the middle road here is our lives being focused on being somebody who's full of integrity and righteousness. More than getting money or wallowing in our lack of it, money or no money, let us be people who uphold God's promises and God's word and mean what we say and say what we mean, that our example in front of others would be, as Jesus said, that you would shine as lights in front of others, that others may see your good works And give praise to your father. And so James is gracious and he's loving and he's wise. He makes us have concern about a money that robs us and insulates us from the hardships and the reality of a broken world, the struggles of a broken self, and the compassion towards the brokenness of others. And he says you ought not to live as one like that, but live with integrity in your heart as one who lives in front of a holy God, that your actions 
would point others to him. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today and just have to admit that anytime we talk about money and anytime your wisdom in scripture points us to the dangers of money, it is uncomfortable and it is challenging and it creates tension. Father, we know above all those things that you are in love with us, that you have given us grace and mercy. And so, Lord, by your sustaining spirit, will you guide us into deeper compassion and love for you, deeper dependency on you? Lord, let us not be fooled by the ideas of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Let us live dependent on you because we need you. And Lord, don't let our money steal that from us. We love you, Father, and we pray this in the beautiful name of Christ our Lord. Amen.